hear the word of the Lord. We find it from the prophet Isaiah in chapter 50, reading verses 1 to 3. So I invite your reverent, faithful, and joyful hearing of God's word here in the beginning of Isaiah chapter 50. Thus says the Lord, Where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away? Or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? Behold, for your iniquities you were sold, and for your transgressions your mother was sent away. Why, when I came, was there no man? Why, when I called, was there no one to answer? Is my hand shortened that it cannot redeem? Or have I no power to deliver? Behold, by my rebuke, I dry up the sea. I make the rivers a desert. Their fish stink for lack of water and die of thirst. I clothe the heavens with blackness and make sackcloth their covering. Uh, there are uh, but uh, two great powers in the world. I understand there's nations with a lot of power. And I understand that a carrier battle group is one of the most powerful elements of uh, national power, but I'm speaking of greatest of powers. There are really but two. Uh, the first is uh, sin and its ability to hold everyone that belongs to it. Releases none. Willingly, to be sure. Incredible power. Uh, not even a carrier battle group can match the power of sin and its hold upon the hearts and minds of uh, everyone that's, uh, that's been born. Then, of course, uh, thankfully so, there's the greater power of God who delivers from the power of sin. Two great powers, so one, of course, greater than the other. Uh, thanks uh, to God for, for the greatness of his power. Uh, but these two powers are seen in our text this morning, uh, first in the critical issue of sin, power, and then uh, the power of God to effect deliverance. Uh, it's a power that we're going to, we're not going to see visually, but it's there in the text to be seen visually uh, in light of the history of redemption. Uh, well, the, the text uh, is an expression of sin, fallen humanity, because Israel is complaining. God is going to turn that complaint on them, but uh, they're engaging in uh, a measure of depravity uh, by complaining against God. So, a disease that's uh, epidemic, uh, not just in the nation of Israel, but in our own country today. Uh, I think uh, uh, complaining and seeking redress is an art form in our own culture and uh, has a way, uh, I think, of blinding us to the gospel. But nonetheless, uh, Israel is blaming God for putting them away and for selling them out to Babylon. You see this in Christians today. Uh, God, if you'd have been there, you'd have fixed that. I'm, so I'm not going to be faithful to you anymore because you weren't faithful to me. It's exactly what Israel is saying. Uh, it's nothing more than the power of sin. Uh, 
The text is also an answer to previous context, Isaiah chapter 49, verse 14. Zion said, Lord, you have forsaken me, and the Lord has forgotten me. So, uh, making God out to be a man who can forget, God doesn't forget. If he could forget, he wouldn't be God. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, controlling metaphors here are divorce and slavery. Both are reminders of sin and its consequences. Uh, God, by application, controlling metaphors, uh, because of sin, God has divorced us. And we have gone and taken another husband, the idols of the world. Uh, we can never go back to God because of that controlling metaphor. It comes out of Deuteronomy chapter 24 and verse 1, that uh, God, if you will, permitted divorce because of indecency. Uh, contextually, I think the word indecency is immorality. Uh, that becomes very important because it begins to uh, define in a way what idolatry is. It's immorality with other gods. But again, God has, uh, if you will, put us away. Can't go back. Uh, the other metaphor, of course, slavery. Uh, we're born slaves to sin. A slavery so powerful that uh, none can emancipate us. There is no manumission of slaves in the economy of sin. Again, it's a reminder of this incredibly powerful event of a sin under these incredibly powerful metaphors of a divorce and slavery. It's interesting when you think of, uh, of uh, a divorce in light of immorality. That's exactly what the writers of the Old Testament use as an expression of, uh, of idolatry and the dangers of idolatry. Uh, they, they use the sin of immorality, of the manifold disloyalty between a man and a wife. I think in many respects, it's a very ugly expression of disloyalty uh, when there's uh, a lack of faithfulness between husband and wife. But that, in its ugliness, uh, begins to define idolatry. In Isaiah chapter 3 and verses 8 and 9. God says, I saw for all the adulteries of faithless Israel. I have sent her away and given her a writ of divorce, yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but she went away and was the harlot too. Again, you can see there that uh, idolatry is defined uh, as terrible expression of disloyalty between a husband and a wife. Uh, verse 9, it came about because of the lightness of her harlotry that she polluted the land and committed adultery with stones and trees. Idolatry. She went out and married stones and trees. That's a way of, I think, sharpening the power of sin. I mean, so great that they would marry a stone in a tree. I mean, think about it in terms of our own duty to loyalty to God, to be faithful to God, to be pure before God. We, uh, we celebrate marriage uh, in our culture. For the most part, I think it's in decline, sharp decline. Uh, perhaps this will happen someday. You'll go to a marriage ceremony and someone will bring a tree forward. That sounds kind of silly, but I'm not so sure it won't happen someday. 
uh, I went to a marriage recently, and they brought a bunch of crystal rocks up front. I mean, there was a wife there, but I thought, really, rocks? I mean, uh, probably it'll happen someday. Who'd you marry? I, I married my favorite pet rock. Sounds silly, incredible, but I'm not so sure. And the reality of sin in our country is we uh, see the RPMs on our depravity increase and increase, the redlining all the way along the line. It might not be so silly. It's the power of sin, though. The power of sin. Holding people, not letting them go. It's also seen, by the way, it's in the church. Revelation chapter 2, verses 20 and 22. Seen in the context of idolatry, immorality, in terms of false teaching. False teaching is an art form in the American church. Revelation chapter 2 and verse 20, Jesus says, But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality. Look how it's defined, to eat things, sacrifice to idols. And I gave her time to repent, but she does not want to repent of her immorality. Behold, I will cast her upon a bed of sickness, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of their deeds. You ever heard false teaching couched in such sharp language? Those who commit adultery with false teachers, Jesus is going to cast in the great tribulation. In our culture, what's false? Believe whatever you want to believe. Let the teacher teach whatever they want to teach. No big deal. My friend, if it's false, you're committing an act of idolatry with the teacher, couched in the language of immorality. Well, it's no big deal. You know what's no big deal to most people? Because they've forgotten the incredible power of sin to capture the mind and not let it go. We redefine everything in America. Be very careful about what you redefine, what you call orthodoxy. And unorthodoxy is an incredible breach, a signal lapse from one to the other, an incredible breach of disloyalty to God couched in language Sexual infidelity. God doesn't take lightly. Just again, the power of sin. Second metaphor slavery. Old Testament, a, a man who owed a bunch of money, he could go and become a slave to one of his countrymen. Uh, slavery was uh, bo- broken on the year of Jubilee, but <laughs> depending upon the year that you sold yourself, that could be a long time. Uh, on the broader scale, of course, is the national event. That, Read the book of Judges. The nation sinned. He sold them into slavery. They cried. He restores them. They sin again. He sells them into slavery. They cry. Same pattern over and over and over again. And finally, the breach becomes somewhat final. Uh, Of course, God doesn't need to sell them into slavery to recover assets or to gain an income stream. Uh, It does because of punishment for disobedience and disloyalty. Uh, But the point of these two compelling metaphors the reason they're divorced, the reason they're slaves, is not God's fault, it's their fault. The power of sin. That's the point of Isaiah chapter 50. First verse, behold, you were sold for your iniquity. 
And for your transgression, your mother was sent away, divorced, put away. In other words, you're complaining against me, you should complain against yourself. It really turns, turns the argument upon the complainant. Yeah, I mean, it's, that's the art form in our culture. We want to blame everybody. Everybody's fault. Everybody's a victim. God just says, go look in the mirror. It's the power of sin. Romans chapter 3, verse 23, for all have sinned. Universal disease. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, you were born dead in your trespasses and sin. Birthed in death. Death cannot create life. It's the power of sin. So God turns the complaint back on them. Well, God has a complaint too. First part of verse 2. Why was there no man when I came? When I called, why was there none to answer? It's a sense of astonishment as God throws a complaint back upon the sinful nation. But it's really an astonishment that's found everywhere in the Scripture. Have you ever thought about the astonishment of John 3.19 and of John 3.16, God so loved the world? God loves all men without distinction. Then the astonishment of John 3.19, light came in the world, but men loved the darkness rather than the light. Incredible. Men loved the darkness rather than the light of Jesus Christ and all of his majesty. It's a reminder, be very careful about what you give your affections to. You may be dancing with a power you know not of. The astonishment of uh, uh, Romans chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. There's none who understand. None. There's none who seeks after God. None. Wait a minute. What about all the religions of the world? Everyone's seeking after God. The apostle Paul. There's none who seeks for God. They have all turned aside to a man, woman, boy, or girl. The astonishment of the power of sin settled upon all of humanity, so much so that no one seeks for God. And no one understands. All have turned aside to rocks and stones. Yet the power. Nothing in this life has the power that sin does. And there's nothing in this life that can defeat it. It has an intractable holding power. So, again, the power sin, but greater power, as I've suggested, the power of God. But in the pattern of redemption, God offers grace and power. Offer, of course, is uh, from the preacher universal, but the power, its, its expression is uh, particular. Uh, but again, it's it's... It's a sense of astonishment uh, continues in the text. Uh, verse 2, is my hand so short that it cannot ransom, or have I no power to deliver? Uh, God is, of course, mocking them 
with these rhetorical questions. I mean, of course, figure of speech, God doesn't, God doesn't have hands, but they are saying, well, your, your hand's not strong enough to save us. We're in Babylon. You can't set us free. Uh, we belong now lock, stock, and barrel to Marduk and the greatest power of the world today, and your, your hand just isn't up to it. Go buy one of those deals, God, and start doing some exercises, and when you're strong enough, you can come back and set us free from Marduk. The folly of that, but that's how we think when we're caught in the traps of sin. Uh, I'm so lost, I'm in such difficulty in my life that not even God can sort it out. God has forgotten me. Doesn't have enough power to fix the things in, in my life. God says, so I don't, I don't have any power to deliver. Uh, so they see God as weak and ineffectual. Again, that's a product of sin. One of the reasons that uh, churches aren't packed, orthodox churches aren't packed out, is because people just don't see God as God really is. Weak and ineffectual. Uh, so we go to hear sermons on human concepts and how to wring out all the anxiety that we have in life. Whatever. God can't save, God can't deliver. Uh, so God is going to rehearse his power for them. Latter part of verse 2 and verse 3. It's going to give them a history lesson. It's, a hist it's our history, though it's a living history. It's an expression of the power of God. Uh, and what the prophet is going to tell them is that God alone has the power to defeat sin. While we no longer have power to defeat sin, he does. And the references here all to the Exodus event. Let's look at the text again. Behold, I dry up the sea with my rebuke. I make the rivers a wilderness. Their fish stink for a lack of water and die of thirst. I clothe the heavens with blackness. I make sackcloth their covering. Power of God. Again, references to the Exodus, historical lesson, the history of God's redemptive power. Ultimately applies to us in the church, but let's turn to Exodus chapter 15. Exodus chapter 15, verse 8. As you know, the armies of Pharaoh are chasing the sons of Israel, and there's a great water obstacle. Uh, and they begin to cry, they begin to complain. Well, God just, Moses, you brought us out here to destroy us. We get it. Uh, again, reference to, uh, to their sin, not understanding the power of God. And so what does God do? Well, God makes a way. But it's really more than that. It's the picture of the language that's quite telling. Exodus chapter 15, the eighth verse. At the blast of thy nostrils, the waters were piled up. The flowing water stood up like a heap. The deeps were congealed in the heart of the sea. So God causes a pathway through the sea. The water's piling up. Create dry ground for them to cross for safety. Uh, and then when they're safe, he, he commands and the waters return to their normal estate. Pharaoh is destroyed. It's pictured again, uh, third chapter, uh, book of Joshua. Got to cross the Jordan River. Well, again, those weren't the, again, 
weren't any bridges then. Uh, so how are they going to cross a river without some, some of them drowning? I mean, maybe the, you know, the Johnny Weissmillers of the world, Tarzan, swim the mighty river. Not many of those. Only one, as I can recall. Uh, so how are they going to cross this river? Well, God's going to make it happen just like he made it happen with Pharaoh. He's, uh, the feet of the priest touched the river and uh, dry ground creates the, the flowing water, just congeals. God makes a way. Uh, Joshua chapter 3 and verse 13. Come about when the soles of the feet of the priests who carry the ark of the Lord and Lord of all the earth shall rest in the waters of the Jordan. The waters of the Jordan shall be cut off and the waters which are flowing down from above shall stand up in one heap. Power of God. Remember when I was a little boy, uh, little boys sometimes do things they ought not do. Springtime in Oklahoma, massive rains. There was this coolest creek back of the house of a friend of mine. Hey, man, let's go build a canoe. We'll just go float this raging creek. Thank, thank God. I never, I never got in that canoe. I never got in that creek because I would have been dead in a moment. Raging water. I don't know if you've ever been caught in a riptide. The point is you're not strong enough to get out. You swim parallel until you're out. Uh, I'm just simply reminding you of the power of God just simply to speak. And those powerful waters of a raging river stop so that the safe passage children of Israel. By the way, that same language, as you know, is captured for us in Revelation chapter 12. Raging river is after the church to sweep it away in destruction, to drown it, that all Christians might be destroyed. And God makes a way for his church, and the earth helps the church, swallows up the water. The point is, Exodus 15, Joshua 3 isn't just history for Israel, it's the history of the power of God in the life of the church. Wasn't for the power of God, false teachers would sweep us all away. Because of the power of sin, the power of sin over the mind, God is more powerful still. Powerful of God to stop uh, false teachers. Again, uh, very instructive in terms of uh, uh, the history of Israel that uh, God defeats the water obstacle. The uh, uh, the allusion to the stinking fish, again, history, Exodus chapter 7. Uh, Moses is going to strike the Nile River. It's going to be turned into blood. Fish are going to die, and when fish die, they eventually stink. Exodus 7, verses 20 21. So Moses and Aaron did even as the Lord had commanded. He lifted up the staff and struck the water uh, that was in the Nile in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, and all the water that was in the Nile was turned to blood, and the fish that were in the Nile died, and the Nile became foul, so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile, and the blood was throughout all the land. It's the point of Isaiah chapter 50. Uh, the fish stink for lack of water. It's reminding them of their history, the power of God. Uh, but 
But the greater reality for us to uh, understand is that the Nile was an Egyptian deity. The Egyptian, the Egyptian theology, the Nile uh, River was, was a god named Hapi. He was the source and sustainer of life. I mean, the Nile River was everything to the Egyptians. Water to drink, to uh, irrigate, fish for food. It's a god. So what's happening in Exodus chapter 7 when, when Moses strikes the river and becomes blood? God is telling them, I destroy your gods and make them dead so that you cannot drink the water or eat the fish. In other words, seemingly in our view, there's this great battle between God and Satan and if the church will just pray enough, God will win. And if the church gets lazy, Satan will get the upper. My friend, that's a bunch of folly. God is not in competition with anyone. He just simply tells Moses, who was a weak man, to strike the river. And he defeats in one fell swoop the Nile River God of Egypt. He's impotent. It's a good reminder for us today and our own country, we have lots of river gods, but there are no gods. They, they, they simply promise life, but they cannot deliver. And in the end, uh, they are foul and they stink. All the false religions of the world, all the corruptions of the Christian faith. That's really what all false religion is, a corruption of orthodoxy. So here God defeats the Nile River God uh, because they're all impotent. Uh, verse 3, the darkness uh, I clothe the heavens with blackness and I make sackcloth their covering. Uh, it's a parallel to the ninth plague, uh, Exodus uh, chapter 10, verses 21 to 22. And the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward the sky and there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, even a darkness which may be felt. And that's pretty powerful. I don't know if you've ever been in a place where it's so dark that your, your skin began to crawl. Go out someday, go camping in a forest. It gets really dark. It gets creepy dark. So powerful was the darkness. And so Moses stretched out his hand toward the sky and there was thick darkness in all the land of Egypt for three days. Except one place. Land of Goshen, where children of Israel were, is a reminder of God defeating the gods of Egypt. Atum Ra was the sun god of Egypt. He was the creator and master of the universe. The rising and the setting of the sun symbolized renewal, and Pharaoh was his incarnation on the earth. And God defeats him through a weak man by the name of Moses, creates darkness for three days. He mocks Ra and Pharaoh. power of God, bringing darkness because they worship darkness. God defeats it, destroys it. God is saying, I have grace and the power to effect it in infinite supply. He defeats all of the gods of Egypt before he leads them into the wilderness to show his power. Again, there is sin and all of its terrible consequences. The most powerful event in all of the world in which we live, 
except for God and his power and the grace and its consequences. What he did in Egypt, he can do again to Babylon. Uh, what he did in Babylon, he does for the church in sparing it from uh, unorthodox teaching, uh, from the power of Satan who spews out water from his mouth to drown the church. Uh, but God protects the church, uh, delivers the church from false theology. You know, by way of application, we don't think in those terms. Well, well, this denomination has this view about God and those weirdos over at Grace Bible Church, they have a weird, really weird view about God. They, they believe that he has the power to defeat sin. Imagine that. We, we don't even deal with sin much in the church anymore. We just kind of wink at it. I mean, God winks at it. No, he doesn't wink at it because of its power, what it does, darkness and destruction. I mean, we, we read all the symptoms of sin, people going into churches and killing people and doing terrible things in our Congress and that's terrible. It's terrible because of sin. We ought not to wink at it. Certain God does it. Uh, but we ought to appreciate its power and flee to uh, the offer of God. In the case of power, it's particular. But nonetheless, uh, what he did in Babylon, what he did for Egypt, he does for the church every day. Uh, again, if it wasn't for the power of God, all of us would be going to some unorthodox church or some false religion, worshiping the stars or worshiping some stone or some statue. Uh, so again, it's not just history, it's uh, the power of God. And that's what Isaiah is telling the children of Israel, it's what he's telling the church. God is all-powerful. He, he breaks the power of sin over uh, your life uh, so you escape from its grasp. And when he does it, you never return. Uh, lots of people in our culture, we make an art firm over uh, renewing ourselves. We go to this 10-step program and that 12-step program and we moralize our life, but... You can do that all you want to. You just can't do it with sin because it owns you. It never lets you go. You can think it lets you go when you've uh, graduated from the 10-step program or whatever step it is. I'm not mocking that. It's the best the world has. Uh, but it comes to God, he breaks and cancels the dominion of sin. Theology of the book of Romans. Used to own the Christian, but in the power of God, he cancels its power. God sets us free. Of course, the zenith of that power comes to us in Christ. Uh, how does Christ come? The incarnation. An infant, weak, seemingly weak, comes in power. Apostle Paul says, uh, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, verse 18, the power, power of the cross is, uh, is foolishness to those who don't believe, but to us it's the power of God. Why is it the power of God to us? Because he defeats sin, makes satisfaction. The greatest expression of power in all of the world. I'm somewhat of a history buff. I like seeing uh, the American bomber drop the bomb over Hiroshima and Nagasaki, the great mushroom crowd. Incredible power. 
unleashed for the first time in the world, but has no comparison, no comparison to the cross in destroying the power of sin for those who have come to the Savior. That's power. Mushroom cloud over Hiroshima and Nagasaki, just a minor element. The, uh, the river imagery of Exodus chapter 50 finds, again, fulfillment in Christ. Uh, Matthew chapter 3. River imagery. I think it's, it's an expression, an echo of Isaiah chapter 50, uh, the miracles of God in Egypt through Moses. Let's read Matthew chapter 3, verses 15 to 17. Power of God. Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he permitted him, and after being baptized, Jesus went up immediately from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and coming upon him. And behold, a voice out of heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, whom I am well pleased. The baptism of Jesus is not like our baptism. When we're baptized, we are identifying uh, with the death and resurrection of Christ. Death, we're going to drown. Resurrection, he raised up, and we're united with him, and we escape the death and resurrection. That's power. Death to life. But he's the Christ. He doesn't have to identify with himself. The significance is that Jesus is fulfilling the restoration promises of the prophet Isaiah in a new exodus through water. That's something of the theology, if you will, back into Exodus chapter 12. We are the new exodus. We are walking on the dry ground of orthodoxy because of the power of God. We see it in Exodus. We live it in the church today. That's why we have, ought to have a deeper understanding of the majesty of the power of God that comes new to us every day, making a way of escape and giving us safe passage through this hostile world, of which there is no escape unless he makes it by his power. The reason I think it's an expression, Matthew 3, in the baptism of Jesus is an expression of Christ fulfilling all of the restoration promises of Isaiah is in the coming of the Spirit. Uh, is a marker of the new creation. And new creation Exodus theology is a constituent part of uh, Isaiah chapter 40 to the end of the book. But, but it's a parallel, is it not? New creation power. Uh, you think of creation. How did we come here? The power of God. Let's turn to uh, Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. And the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. The Spirit moving over the waters. It's going to create light out of darkness and dry ground. The presence of the Spirit. And in Matthew 3, it's a spirit that comes like a dove, acknowledging the majesty of the Son of God, Christ, the Messiah, in his baptism. He is the new creator. He's going to create life in the church. It's pictured for us again. The power of God. Uh, Genesis chapter 8. 
great flood, the majesty, the power of the flood. We see it every spring in Oklahoma, do we not? This is a worldwide cataclysmic flood. Something radical is going to happen. The coming of the Spirit. Genesis chapter 8, verse 1, God remembered Noah, and all the beasts and all the cattle were with him in the ark, and God caused a wind. The word wind can also be translated spirit. To pass over the earth, and the water subsided. The power of God. The Spirit comes and creates dry ground for Noah. I love the phrase, God remembered Noah. God didn't have to go get a book out of the library. Just a figure of speech. You know, God loves you and has never forgotten you if you're his child. He can't forget you because of who he is. It's pictured even more beautifully in the 11th verse. And the dove came uh, to Noah in the evening, and behold, in her beak was a freshly picked olive leaf, so Noah knew that the water was abated from the earth. So the dove coming upon Noah, now the dove coming upon Jesus, he's the new creator. All of the power of God in creating and framing the physical universe is expanded and intensified in Christ who will sovereignly create the church by the power of the cross. That's power. I mean, I understand, and we're, we're worried about nuclear arms race in the United States, as we should be. I don't like it that the North Koreans maybe have a nuclear weapon. Would that we were so worried about the power of sin. And would that someone would teach us about the power of God who can break its dominion and set people free. That's power. A new appreciation. The power of God. Uh, it, beyond beyond uh, the dove coming upon Jesus, the spirit coming acclamation of, of the beginning of the ministry of Christ, uh, the Father is pleased uh, because he's the light of salvation. The darkness cannot stop him. Something, the language, by the way, of the power of God. Uh, John chapter 1, verse 5. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness, New American Standard reads, comprehend it. I like my own translation, the darkness could not defeat it because he's the light, the power of God. The light of the gospel in Christ. You know, by the way, if you're not a Christian, darkness owns you. Sin owns you. All of the gods of Egypt own you. We don't call them the gods of Egypt. We call them whatever. Some statue in a museum that people call Buddha. You can't escape. You're a slave. You can't set yourself free. The only freedom is the offer of the gospel in Jesus Christ. It's particularized in the church because of the power of God. Uh, church doesn't save itself. God saves the church and sets it free. It cancels the power of sin. Uh, so we have this disastrous problem that we can't defeat. Uh, we were born dead in trespasses and sin and absent any power to defeat it. Well, I've told you the power. It's the cross in Christ. There's only one real answer, that God is rich in mercy and can create life. In the words of the Apostle Paul, resurrect dead men, which is what he does. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 5. He made us alive. Verse 6, he raised us up. Resurrection, the power of the resurrection already begun in the life of the church. 
I understand there's a greater resurrection yet to come. It's already begun, the power of God. He sets people free from sin. He gives light to their light, and they believe in Christ. He uh, makes them alive and raises, us up, raises them up. That's power. That's power. Sin and its consequences represent the greatest power in all of life and history, but God alone has the power to defeat it. Not only to defeat it, to deliver his people. To cause sin to let go. It's the only cure for the only real disease. Uh, by the way, just a couple of illustrations uh, of this power of God over sin. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 31. Uh, great expression here of the power of God over sin. Uh, chapter 31. Verse 34, I will remember their sin no more. Power of God and forgiveness. We uh, need to understand the grace of God, his power. Uh, we live in an incredibly vindictive society. Everyone trying to get even. Everyone trying up one-manship on someone else. Respecting the people of God. The power of the cross, he remembers their sin no more. In other words, sin is no longer a liability because we're the sons of God. That's power. Ezekiel 36, 26. I'll take away their heart of stone. Give to them a real heart. Heart of stones, imagery of idolatry. You worship a stone, I'll make you like a stone. Uh, by the way, that's an art form in America. We worship everything and we're being transformed, the likes of which we have no clue as to how we're being transformed. God alone has power to take away the heart of stone and create a heart of flesh. One illustration of this among countless illustrations, the Apostle Paul, preaching a sermon, to a woman by the name of Lydia. She was a God-fearer, but she was not a Christian. Still giving her heart to Judaism. Christ has come, new age, new Moses, new power. And the text reads, Acts chapter 16, verse 14, and God opened her heart. That's power. A heart that belongs to sin and death and destruction. God speaks, she has life, comes to the Savior. Just simply reminding you that sin is an incredible power, the likes of which we don't really appreciate today. But God is greater still. He speaks and says, let there be light, and there's light. Lydia comes to faith, a follower of Christ, supports the gospel the advancement of the church. So there is a sense in which there is an offer of the gospel to all men universally. But particularly, God saves his people and sets them free, gives them new hearts, and remembers their sin no more. A great promise. The entire world in which we live is drunk on grief and seeking every chemical there is to get over it. None of it works. 
it works with God. He remembers our sin no more. But it's only had in him and by him. God's grace, uh, may all of us as a member of the church of Jesus Christ know and relish and celebrate the power of his deliverance over our sin and guilt. Because in him we are free.